Educational equity. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. Good to have you with us. There are a lot of challenges in the US educational system, specifically for children of refugees, but there's a new effort to try to do some things that are actually working, perhaps on sort of a test case kind of basis. Uh, and this is based on a book by Luma Muflesh. She is the author, she's a, a entrepreneur coach and also the author of the book, Learning America, One Woman's Fight to, uh, for Educational Justice for Refugee Children. Uh, Luma joins us now, thanks for being on the program. So just to sort of set the scene here, uh, you're originally from Jordan, um, you're Muslim, you're gay, you came to the United States and you discovered some kids on a soccer field. Take us from the, and that's the sort of the the base. That's the start of the book, right? Um, I think the start of the book actually goes back to my family um, leaving Syria back in the '60s. But the start of the work here in America goes back to that um, story um, of meeting kids outside playing soccer. Um, you mentioned I uh, am Arab and uh, Jordanian and gay. I call that the hat trick of identity. <laughs> um, but uh, one day, you know, I was driving to a Middle Eastern grocery store, um, trying to get authentic hummus and pita bread. Um, I missed my turn back to my apartment complex and had to U-turn into um, this other apartment. And you know, it felt like a scene uh, out uh, not in America. Um, as I was driving down that road, um, there are women in hijabs. Um, There's a Buddhist temple, a mosque. It it just didn't feel like the part of Atlanta I had lived in. Um, and then when I U turned into that complex, there were a group of kids uh, playing soccer. They were playing with rocks set up as goals and a really raggedy soccer ball. Uh, I had been coaching club soccer for a while, and so I grabbed a soccer ball out of my trunk, uh, got out of the car, and um, the kids rushed me. They wanted the ball. I wanted <laughs> to play. Uh, we haggled, and they got the ball, and and I got to play. Um, the original group of uh, boys I met that day were from Afghanistan, Liberia, and South Sudan, um, and that was how it all started. So you started not only coaching them, but you also then started to sort of dive into their challenges as far as the U.S. educational system. Yeah, I think it was like eye-opening for me. I'd read the books in college, took a couple of education courses, but I think I, I didn't, uh, I was able to distance myself from the reality. Um, my parents sent me to British uh, and American schools growing up. So um, they believed that the Western education was the best the world had to offer. Um, and I believed every school in America was like the State Department run high school I went to in Amman, Jordan. And it was a rude awakening realizing it was not. Um, my players, um, were set up for failure very early on. Uh, a lot of them had been in the school system two, three, four years and couldn't read a word. Um, and it was heartbreaking because that's not the America I believed in. What's the biggest mistake that most, you know, whether it's public schools or even some private schools, but what's the biggest mistake they make as far as missing an opportunity with, you know, children of refugees or immigrants? I think a big mistake they they make is they assume that oral language is developed the same as academic language and it's not like you learn to speak language before you learn to read and write it and so for a lot of refugees and immigrants they'll speak it but can't read it can't recognize letters um, and that refugees aren't just one monolith like it's not just one experience you know you have people that have recently fled the war, like our uh, Afghan refugees that just recently arrived, that trauma was fresh from August. Some were born and raised in refugee camps. Um, 
like some of our, our kids from Congo and uh, Myanmar and others, you know, three to four years out of the conflict. Um, and so their education has been disrupted or non-existent for a very long time. And the conventional wisdom in a lot of places across the United States is that if somebody has been through something horrific, a kid has been through that and maybe they have PTSD or war experiences or they saw some just horrible stuff that somehow, well, they're not capable in terms of succeeding in a US educational system. And you found actually the opposite given the right circumstances. I mean, it's the right circumstances and the right way of looking at it, right? Like, so for me, if someone said they've left their country, they fled war, they started new in a different country. Learning the language is super easy because you've done something super hard and that most people in their lifetime are not capable of doing. So it's seeing their experience as an asset, not something that holds them back and motivating and inspiring and just keep holding them accountable. It's I think when kids have high expectations, they live up to it. And you know, I think that's what we create. And your book, has, as I mentioned, serves as now as something of a blueprint for a lot of schools who are, who are trying things out. What are some of the lessons from your book that uh, that schools can can see or, or can put in place immediately? Um, I think one of the ways we try to approach it is very logically, right? So if you've never learned a word of English, we start you at the beginning. You know, you're not going to start like doing algebra if you don't know how to add or multiply, even though you're 13, right? But we do it quickly, um, small classroom sizes, incentivize the kids to do well. Um, one thing we do that I think uh, creates safety is um, we celebrate everything in the building, every culture, every faith. It feels like every week we're having some kind of party. Um, and we want kids to feel comfortable in who they are, not reject it and embrace it and just uh, bring it in. Um, and another like simple way is our uh, big focus is athletics and the arts. Those are really powerful ways to create belonging and learning. Um, there are other languages of expression and you don't need oral language to, to start to participate in them. Um, so it creates that safety and then some success and then some excitement around being in school. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, look, as a parent uh, and you know, kids who grew up in the United States, I mean, the sense of camaraderie that children get from playing sports or being part of a musical group is, is invaluable. And I can imagine that it's even that much more crucial for kids who are relatively new to this country. Yeah, especially because like they're part of a team, right? And so they're surrounded by other kids who've gone through the same experience they have. And instead of feeling isolation, they're like, oh, I'm part of a group of kids that have my back. You know, we're going to win games together, we're going to lose games together, and you know, it's fun. Like, if you ask a lot of kids that uh, struggled in school, or maybe even those that haven't, you ask them, what was the highlight of your school experience? They're not going to say English class or history class or math. They're going to say the musical production or the uh, basketball team. You know, those are the things we need to focus on more. Yeah, to this day, I've got friends from my high school who we talk about our memories of elementary school and what jumps out is playing kickball during recess, whether it was organized or not. Um, the book just came out. Uh, tell us a little bit about sort of what inspired the book, how long you've been working on it, and what's the reaction been? Um, so I, I worked on the book for about a year. Um, it was a therapeutic uh, process. You know, I weave some of my backstory into it. Um, I wanted people to have the book I wish I had when I first started this work, that it's messy. It's not always easy. I feel so many books that are in the social justice space, they try to portray like superheroes. 
Um, and I wanted to be very uh, transparent, and authentic about mistakes I made, lessons I learned, um, and how to do right by kids. Um, and then weaving some of my uh, backstory because it's it's not this like white savior complex. This is very personal for me. Like I lost my home, my family under very different circumstances, but um, I, I feel this responsibility uh, to give back to my my own. And I would imagine that within the U.S. educational system, a lot of teachers would probably be very grateful uh, to have this sort of as a resource. Uh, particularly, I mean, because it doesn't seem like, at least to me, and I'm something of a, you know, a novice in terms of the educational system and, and teaching and all that. But it seems, based from out of my own experience, that teachers in America aren't given a lot of help when it comes to dealing, particularly with students who are from another place. No, I mean. You know, I've been visiting the country, this uh, schools around the country this past six months. Um, you know, uh, trying to figure out like what districts we want to partner with. And I was visiting a, a school uh, up in Massachusetts, and you know, we're talking to them about uh, they're having an influx of Afghan refugees. And this one teacher, like, so excitedly said, "Yeah, we've ramped up. We've got our Arabic interpreters lined up." I kind of had to pause, and I'm like, "It's not Arabic, you know." And but they, they don't have those resources and we assume they're supposed to know everything about every conflict, every culture and not provide training or resources or, or safe places to ask questions. You know, like it's a, it's a very um, compromising position to put teachers in. Uh, you've gotten a $10 million grant or $10 million investment to try to take some of what's in the book and, and spread it around. Tell us about that. Um, yes, we received a generous uh, donation from Mackenzie Scott. Um, we're going to be using it to um, implement our model in school districts across the country. Uh, we have our first partner district uh, with Bowling Green, Kentucky, and we're only doing one next year. So despite this big grant, we're like, we wanna take it slow. We wanna pilot, make sure we work everything out. And then we're gonna ramp up pretty, pretty quickly to get to 50 districts in five years. And the refugees in Bowling Green, where are they from? They're from everywhere. You know, they've got refugees from Afghanistan, from the Congo, um, from Guatemala, Honduras, um, everywhere. Um, yeah, I was surprised. I, I didn't realize that about Bowling Green when when they first approached us. I wonder what it is about the Bowling Green, Kentucky. Is there something maybe automotive or, or something that um, I mean? I just Kentucky's educational system generally is not considered one of the, the better ones across the United States, but maybe there's something about Bowling Green that uh, attracts a, a refugee community. I mean, I think uh, across the country, it's um, pockets of refugee resettlement uh, communities, and mm -hmm. usually it's around uh, a need for manual labor. So whether it's a mm -hmm. meat processing plant or a huge warehouse and uh, affordable cost of living, and you know the Midwest to the South, has large pockets, you know, there's Columbus, Ohio, Cleveland, Des Moines, Omaha. I mean, just go down the middle. Well, Luma, it is a look terrific work that you've been doing and so inspiring. The book is Learning America, One Woman's Fight for Educational Justice for Refugee Children. It has already gotten rave reviews and an opportunity for every educational system, every every educator out there. If you've got refugees or kids from another place and you're not quite sure the best way to try to help empower them, get a copy of this book. Luma Mufla, thanks so much for being on, we appreciate it. Thank you so much, David. You got it. The Great Resignation. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. So, since the pandemic has largely ended, although maybe not, but over the last year or so, according to Labor Department data, uh, 4 million Americans have quit their jobs every month 
since last June. So in other words, 10 straight months of more than 4 million Americans quitting their job. Uh, and the question is, is this really sort of unusual? Is it unprecedented? Is there something here going on? So let's talk about it with Ben Wink. He's the economics reporter for Insider. Um, ben, good of you to join us. What, what has been happening in the, in, in, to cause this sort of great change over the past year? Hey there, uh, thanks for having me on. So the really interesting thing here is, you know, we we came out of the, the initial lockdowns with first off so much uh, extra cash um, from you know, stimulus and from pent up savings as we were, we were locked down, staying at home and not really going out and spending. And all of a sudden we unleash this wave of spending and businesses are, are struggling to really meet that with supply. And we've seen that and you've probably heard about, you know, the supply chain issues that have been you know, leading to a lot of inflation and, and really hitting businesses hard, but that also has to do with workers. Um, they're just having a really hard time rehiring as fast as they need to, to sort of meet that wave of demand. And uh, and so we've come to call it, you know, there are many terms for it. There's the great resignation, there's a labor shortage. And it's really a combination of, you know, it being really hard to hire and then people quitting jobs either to just fully exit the labor force or to find a job elsewhere. Um, the quits data that you know that I look at as a you know an economy reporter and that economists look at as well, um, that counts quits as both you know leaving to go to another job, um, but also just fully leaving the workforce. So it is a bit vague, but it's important to to make that distinction. And this high level of churn uh, throughout the economy it creates a record level of job openings, um, and I would imagine that also drives up wages. Right, so that's what we're, we've been seeing now um, in these monthly jobs reports is that, you know, with uh, labor force participation, at least people who are who are in the workforce um, being, you know, having a, a slower recovery than overall, uh, you know, job growth. Businesses are really clamoring to to rehire and and fighting over each other to get workers into their doors, right, to apply for their jobs, and. You know, that's we we saw at the beginning of the pandemic. Some businesses were saying, you know, we'll give you uh, you know a signing bonus. Uh, businesses that really don't usually give signing bonuses, they'll give uh, special gifts. I think a lot of uh, fast food restaurants were offering iPhones and and Apple products. Um, but really, like you said, the number one thing we've been seeing and seeing for several months now is historically strong wage growth for the first time in decades. So with all of this widespread quitting right now and, and job shakeups, there seems, it feels like to a lot of people, oh my God, we're in unprecedented times. And yet, as you've been reporting, actually, we've been through this sort of thing before. Explain. Yeah, so the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco had this really interesting study out uh, last week. And I should preface this with you know, the, the data that we use to track the great resignation, right? Quits data. That only goes back, at least the, the go-to measure that, that most economists look at, that only goes back to the year 2000, okay? Remember that, it's gonna be pretty important. Um, what the San Francisco Fed said was, you know, combining that data with some other jobs data that goes further back, what we're seeing right now isn't something that's brand new. It's not something we've never seen before. We actually had similarly high quit rates back in the, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. Uh, the reason why it feels so weird right now is that our main benchmark uh, for for tracking quits and tracking you know this great resignation uh, doesn't go that far back. It only goes to the year 2000, and so we haven't had a recovery over the past 20 years that's been this fast. You've seen jobs just you know flood uh, the economy. You've seen 
businesses really struggling and, and rushing to rehire. Um, and that that pace has just outpaced how fast people are rejoining the workforce. You also have to consider, you know, the economy is so much bigger than it was back when we had the last time we had such a fast jobs recovery. And there's still so many factors like obviously the pandemic um, holding people from from you know looking for jobs and re-entering the workforce. Uh, child care expenses is a really big one for parents. Um, and then some people are really just waiting to get the best offer they can get. You know, they've been seeing wages climb for for so long at a really healthy clip. And uh, you know, there are plenty of people who who are just waiting on the sidelines to see, you know, can I get a better starting salary if I just wait it out and negotiate a bit more? So despite you know economic recovery, say 2009, 2010, what you're saying is that those were a little bit slower and the stars also didn't align in terms of the, the pent up demand or the, the stimulus checks, et cetera, et cetera, that, that sort of comes together to create the sort of frenzy that we're feeling. Exactly, you know, the, the recovery after 2008, 2009 was, was really, really slow. I mean, the jobs recovery right now, if you're just looking at non-farm payrolls, right, the main jobs number, it's pretty much three times faster than the recovery after the Great Recession. Um, same deal with the recovery after the dot-com bubble burst in the early 2000s. That was also a, a pretty slow jobs recovery. So you know, this is the first one since we've been getting that quits data that we started uh, collecting back in 2000. This is the first recovery to, to really show a rapid jobs uh, rebound. And does that rapid jobs rebound also then show up in terms of how high inflation seems to be reported now? Right, so that's been the really interesting thing to watch now is you know, on one hand, um, wage growth has been stellar. Um, but on the other hand, you know, that that's creating some concerns about a potential wage price spiral where people are getting paid more, so they spend more. That's more money going to businesses. And then they think they can raise prices because people have more money. and that. You know, that could become a vicious cycle that just worsens inflation. But so far, um, you know, the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell has said he's not really concerned about about that happening. That kind of vicious cycle uh, emerging. You know, we've we've seen productivity, uh, which is really key in this in this kind of uh, topic. Productivity has been growing at a pretty strong pace through the pandemic, um, and because of that, you know, that's allowed for this kind of wage growth without those inflation worries. Now, if we see wage growth, uh, you know, continue to be really, really strong, while uh, job growth is is not as uh, is not as healthy, maybe it would be uh, you know about time to start to worry about you know, hitting the brakes on that. But you know, for now, inflation is so strong that even though we have healthy wage growth, uh, it's only just keeping pace with inflation. And in many people's cases, it's still not enough to beat how much prices are climbing. Now, as far as the job growth being very intense right now, and of course the the job shakeup, the great resignation being very strong, whatever people want to call it, um, it's not like though it's going to last forever. And in fact, there's some indications that may not last through the end of this year. Right. So, you know, on one hand, you have to you have to see that you know wage growth is is so strong, and people are seeing that, um, and so that's probably one major factor that's driving all this resignation, all this quitting is. People are seeing, oh, if I could go to this this other job, or if I leave where I'm working right now, I can get paid way more. And there are so many job openings out there that it's not going to be that hard. And when Americans see other Americans quitting, especially like you mentioned earlier, you know, four million a month for for the past ten months. Um, when you see that many people quitting, you know, you probably feel pretty good about doing that yourself, right? The odds that you can get another job, and not just that, but get a job that 
maybe has better conditions or better pay or both. Um, you know, people are feeling pretty confident in, the, in their ability to do that. Now, on the flip side, you know, as jobs are filled and, and as job growth slows, just because you know we're nearing the end of the jobs recovery, we've already recovered 93% of the jobs that we lost. You know, as the pace of that recovery slows, people might start to think, okay, it's not as easy to quit, and maybe I should be a bit more secure and and you know rein in my expectations and stick with what I've got. Um, I wonder, Ben, how much the sort of the unique experience of the pandemic, uh, people essentially being forced to experience having more time at home, uh, essentially caused a realignment in people's sort of values on a wide scale. So the people thought, okay, before I was just sort of going to the office every day, but now I've experienced what it's like to be able to have a little more flexibility. I want to continue that flexibility. My job is telling me, no, you got to go back to the office, and no, I want to. I want to continue to have something that's more of a, a hybrid. How much is that sort of playing into all of this? Yeah, so we see in some of the reports that you know, yes, we've seen the the sort of the, the share of workers who are working remotely or telecommuting that's gone down, um, and and that makes sense, right? We we're vaccinated now. Um, virus cases, while we start to see them, you know, climb a bit higher, at least on the East Coast where I'm at. Um, virus cases are still relatively low uh, across the nation. And so, you know, a lot of people are returning to offices. It's been going on for a few months, but there's still a pretty solid portion. I think it's around 10% still uh, who are working remotely. And I think it's fair to say that there are going to be people who who are going to work remotely from here on out. You know, even once we are, you know, fully vaxxed, boosted, and, and we can hopefully put this pandemic uh, behind us. People are going to be working from home, um, and you know, couple that with the worker power that we're seeing, right? Really strong wage growth, uh, businesses really struggling to rehire, and, and really being desperate to get their uh, their worker counts back to where they were. Um, and a lot of people are saying, you know, listen, if I can't work the way I want to work, and and like you mentioned, you know, I got used to these sorts of things during the pandemic, working from home, greater flexibility, that kind of thing. You know, if they don't see that. Uh, you know, the job that they're looking at, then they don't really have to take it because there's so many job openings throughout the country. Um, if, if somebody Ben is thinking about you know quitting their job or finding a new one, would the advice be to do it now because there are so many opportunities and because there's so much churn, as opposed to waiting six months or a year when maybe it's not quite as much of a frenzy? I definitely do it now over waiting a year. Um, you know, six months out from now, who knows where we could be? There could be another virus uh, variant wave. Um, you know, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that doesn't happen. But I think right now, you know, what the data is telling us is it's really there have been very few times it's so easy to uh, to get in a, another job and and to get a, a higher salary with that new job. Mm. Um, any predictions, Ben, as far as um, the media market and 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 where that goes? Do we do we have a future if we want to change jobs within the broadcast or digital space? You know, I think uh, from what I've seen, I think um, you know the, the the broadcast digital side, especially you know streaming, YouTube, that kind of thing. I think you know you're in a pretty good spot. Um, you know, as an economy reporter, I'm I'm I enjoy um, you know being in this sort of recovery phase because everyone cares about what's going on with the recovery and. And people tend to tune in a little bit more. So I think I you know, you. all of us are in a very good spot. Well, just to be clear, I am not uh, about to resign my position with the Young Turks. Um, I'm quite happy where I am, uh, but we are growing. We're part of that market that is on fire. In any case, uh, Ben Wink, he is an economics reporter for Insider. Ben, thanks for doing this. We appreciate it. Likewise, thanks so much for having me.
And that'll do it for this conversation on behalf of Asher Cofield, Craig Lowry, Ginny Kim, and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks. I'm David Schuster. Thanks for joining us.